0: up in Arkansas's governor's mansion and helping with her dad Michael Huckabee's gubernatorial campaign as well as campaign for the presidency. Sarah Huckabee Sanders clearly has politics in her blood. And as you know, she served President Trump as his White House press secretary from 2017 to 2019 position where she defended the president. I think we can honestly say with a lot of vigor. Now, rumor has it when she stepped away from the White House that President Trump started calling her governor. And I think that's a pretty clear hint that Sarah may be returning to the mansion where she spent her teenage years. Good evening, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us. I'm Jim Falk, President of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Before we get started, let me just remind you of a few things. I hope that you'll purchase a copy of Sarah's book, Speaking for Myself, faith freedom and the fight of our lives inside the trump white house and you can purchase it at interrobankbooks.com and as frequent viewers know you can always get 10 percent off by typing in the code dfw world also want to remind you that if you've missed one of our programs you can go to our youtube channel Remember that DFW world again, and you can watch all of our past programs. I wanna thank uh, Park City's Republicans Women's Club and the Dallas County Republicans for helping us promote this evening's program. And a special shout out, special thanks to our presenting sponsor, the Sumners Foundation. Uh, Before I introduce Ray Washburn, let's learn more about the Sumners Foundation. We come from different walks of life and follow different paths, pursue different professions, practice different traditions. We are different, yet one thing unites us. We are Americans. We are the Sumners Foundation. Developing a network of thought leaders around the founding ideals of self-governance by funding scholarships and investing in programs that educate and engage Americans. The Sumners Foundation, on the job since 1949. And I should mention that right after our program, uh, Sarah will be talking with some of the Sumners fellows for a little bit. So that'll be a great opportunity for them. To introduce Sarah is her good friend, Ray Washburn. In 2017, Ray joined the Trump administration to lead the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, where under his leadership, the agency was reinvented, might even say reinvigorated, as the US International Development Finance Corporation, which by all accounts, not just Ray's, was a significant positive change for our country's development efforts. In 2019, Ray stepped down from this role to return to Dallas, where he is a very active and successful real estate developer. And last year, he was appointed by President Donald Trump to the President's Intelligence Advisory Board. And in April of this year, he was selected to uh, be a a member of President Trump's Economic Revival Task Force. And of course, Ray is a valued member of the World Affairs Council. Ray, would you please introduce Sarah? And then we'll begin our conversation.
1: Sure, thank you, Jim. I am very proud to introduce Sarah. She and I have had a long relationship we served together on Tim Plenty, Governor Tim Pawlenty, when he ran for president in 2012. She was a press secretary and I was the uh, national finance chairman. And after that short-lived campaign, we went together, worked with Mitt Romney, then on to the Trump campaign. And as we worked together and both went into the administration, I got to follow her around the world as we went on many trips with uh, Trump as in my role at OPIC. And, she was in the press office when Sean Spicer resigned his position and Sarah was asked by the president to uh, take his job. And if you read his book, which I, her book, which I've read over the last few nights, there's a pretty uh, interesting story of her going into when she was named to be a press secretary and how that all came about with Scaramucci, the Mooch who um, was her boss for about two or three days before uh, she took over the total comms job. But Sarah is an old friend, and if you watched her take the incoming that she took and how composed she was in the time she served with great as our press secretary, I'm very proud to call her a friend and to know that she uh, is a great American. And she's now back in Little Rock raising her her children in little safer grounds in a good red state. So uh, Sarah, we're happy to have you on today.
0: Thank you so much, Ray. Sure. Welcome, Sarah.
2: Thank you so much. Uh, It's an honor to be with all of you tonight, and certainly to see my good friend, Ray, who was um, a force in the Trump administration. As anybody, I think, that has met him knows, um, there's nothing he does that he doesn't do extremely well. And so to get to work alongside him and um, watch him just I think you said it perfectly reinvigorate and even reinvent OPEC uh, was really remarkable. And so, very proud of the work he did, but even more so that I get to call him a friend. And so, thank you, Ray, for the kind introduction. And I look forward to a great night of good conversation. So, with that, Jim, I will uh, let you take it away.
0: So, before we get into your book, I'd like you to tell us a little bit more about your dad and how he went from being a, a, a pastor. To, to governor? Uh,
2: he had a little bit of an interesting path. You know, he, I don't think he ever set out to um, run for office or even to be a pastor. His original, uh, I think, ambition was to be kind of more of a Christian communicator, and he had started a Christian communications business, and in that he was, um, started to develop a lot of relationships around the state. He got very active in the pro-life movement in Arkansas and through that built a pretty good network of support and a group of people kind of kept coming to him and saying, you should run for office. And he got tired of not seeing people support and really fight for the things that he believed in. So in 1992, he threw his hat into the United States Senate race against an 18 year incumbent And um, if you'll recall, 1992 was not the best year ever for a Republican in Arkansas to be on the ballot when the governor of our home state as a Democrat was being elected president. And so it didn't work out very well for him he lost that race but he put together quite the organization and with bill clinton becoming president the governor became the, the lieutenant governor became governor and they held a special election for lieutenant governor and my dad was elected to that in 93 re-elected in 94 and then um, sort of became governor during a tumultuous time when the governor had to resign over white Rotter related felonies and he became governor overnight and then was re-elected to two full terms after that. So So, um, how did you feel
0: as a young girl being moved from Texarkana and your whole life there to to Little Rock and being in the governor's
2: mansion? I wasn't very excited to be honest with you Jim, I was pretty unhappy. I was um, just hit 13 and um, 13 is a difficult age all by itself, so to move to a new city, And also have your dad as the governor added some extra complications for uh, my 13 year old self that I didn't love. But I ultimately um, made great friends here in Little Rock and loved the experience and loved getting to be part of the campaigns. A lot of kids spent their summers at summer camp in the pool. I spent my summers hitting the Arkansas Festival circuit, passing out flyers, asking them to vote for my dad. So I fell in love with our state in a way that I never would have had the opportunity to see had he not run for office. And I also got to see what makes Arkansas so special and amazing, and that's the people. And I just really kind of fell in love with the process at that young age.
0: So in college, you majored in political science?
2: I right. did. I, uh, political science and communications. I guess I wasn't very original, um, in that, in that space.
0: Well, you're somebody who at least has a career that sort of relates back to that, to that major, which isn't always the case. <laughs> Tell us about the first time that you met, uh, then candidate, uh, Trump.
2: The, the first time I met him was in early 2015. And in fact, I was not supporting him at that time because my dad was in the race and I was, my dad's campaign manager, so um, he wasn't my first choice, but he quickly became my second choice after my dad got out of the race. I got to know uh, candidate Trump at the debates and other kind of cattle call events where all of the candidates that were running would end up in the same place and um, got to know him a little bit through that process. But in early 2016, February, in fact, my dad uh, withdrew from the race. And a couple weeks later, I signed on with President Trump's campaign and um, then spent almost a year on the campaign and two and a half years in the White House.
0: You, you, In the book, you write a lot about President Trump's personality. And let me just quote this, the president is one of the most fun people to be around I've ever known. He has a huge personality and a laugh out loud sense of humor. It's something that as an observer of him watching him on on television, you just don't see it. Why is that?
2: I do think you would see it if if people would pay attention and realize that sometimes um, he's, I think so often the media, doesn't take the president seriously in moments when and and too serious when he's trying to be funny he has a huge sense of humor i think ray would echo that feeling having spent a good bit of time around the president Um, i loved our back and forth he's a great storyteller he has a very engaging personality very charismatic and um you know I don't know why people miss the fun, because it's definitely there. I think if you pay attention to the president at a rally, I think too often people read too much and try to take him too literally, and I think sometimes he's just having a little bit of fun.
0: But as someone who's worked so closely with him, and you must have been aware that he has this perception Did you ever try to talk with him and say, hey, let's let people see a different side of you? Or does he just really feel that he has to come across almost uh, aggressive most of the time in public?
2: Well, I I think certainly he has um, a sense of wanting to be tough. I mean, let's not forget he is under constant attack. And when you are under attack like that, you have to fight back. And if you start to, I think, show um, maybe too much, people will take advantage of that and try, I think, to poke holes in his armor. And so I think the president had kind of an obligation to continue to fight back, continue to show the tougher side of him because he was under just a barrage of attacks day in and day out.
0: So Jonathan Karl, um, ABC's White House correspondent, wrote a piece um, on July 11th of this year in the Washington Post. And he talked about the duty of the White House press secretary, and he described it this way. The White House press secretary's job differs fundamentally from that of a spokesperson for a candidate or political party. The White House press secretary serves at the pleasure of a president, but is also a public servant whose salary is paid by taxpayers. The job is to inform the public to be an intermediary between the president and a a press corps the public relies on for information. Do you agree with his um, description of the job? And do you feel that that you uh, really handled it in that manner? Or how do you see the job?
2: I do. um, And I think every administration is a little bit different. Certainly, the White House press secretary has a duty um, and obligation to present information to the American public, but they're doing so on the behalf of the the president that they serve. And so I, I think you have to make sure that you understand that no one elected the press secretary to anything. They did elect Donald Trump, and your job is to speak on that person's behalf communicate their agenda, communicate their vision to America, not your own. Um, And sometimes that can be a bit of a challenge um, because you're speaking for somebody else. And anytime it's not just you, there's obviously a difficulty. You have to have a very good relationship with the principal and you really have to be in lockstep with that person to be able to communicate on their behalf.
0: There are questions along these lines. So I'm just gonna go ahead and ask it. The president is known, at least by the White House, for not always telling the full truth and some misstatements. When you were aware that some of these were the case, how did you handle it? Or do you you feel that you always spoke the truth from the podium?
2: I do, and one of the things that I found frustrating at times is the media, I think their go-to move is when they disagree with the message or they don't like the messenger, it's to attack and, and, and call names and certainly to make personal attacks. I experienced that a lot as the White House press secretary. And I also found it interesting the media who perpetuated for two years The fake news and the Russia witch hunt story and promised to produce evidence, promised that there was something there, spent millions of dollars in taxpayer money and time pushing this information never resulted in anything. I think if anyone has a credibility problem, it's the media. And I think they should be very careful about attacking the president on that matter when they themselves need to take a real look at how they operate and the way that they function and whether or not they're putting good and real information in the hands and in the minds of voters. Dallas Baptist University is a global, Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact
0: in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ Podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a Master's in International Studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. So let me throw this question at you. It comes from Martha Powell. And um, she says, this might produce a very interesting answer as you have 20 years experience as the daughter of a governor and all of your campaign work. How is the national press score different from the local and state press in Arkansas and other states where you've worked. So when you're, you know, working with the candidate, do you prefer, decide to go to the local press corps? And, and how do you do that?
2: Well, I, I think one of the biggest difference, um, and not, not necessarily difference, but one of the things to, to keep in mind are the White House press corps are the toughest and shrewdest and some of the smartest journalists in the country. The reason they're there is because they're usually at the top of their field and um, have worked hard to get to that place. That's that's not to to say that those on the local level aren't also very tough and smart journalists, but I think that is in a lot of cases, not every case, but that's sort of a peak to, to work towards uh, depending on what field you're in, either to be an on-air anchor or to be a journalist that covers the White House. And so um, those are usually more seasoned and longer serving uh, journalists, at least in my experience.
0: But we know they're all fighting for airtime. And uh, you talk about Jim Acosta, you, give, you, you sort of rake him over the coals. And of course, you'd had that experience with him um, when there was a situation with the intern. Who... Um, uh, not to put you too much on the spot, but who, who are some of the best White House correspondents and I, who's the worst?
2: <laughs> well, I, I don't want to ruin their careers the best by saying that I liked them, because <laughs> you could probably uh, send them crashing down. Um, but there are some people that I think work extremely hard to put out good and real news on the daily basis and had a good relationship with a number of journalists that covered the White House. Unfortunately, the ones that I think so often are seen are the ones that are the loudest, the Jim Acostas of the world, who I think decided that they would rather be the story than report the story. And to me, that's a real problem in journalism and certainly became a real problem in the briefing room when they were more focused on getting that airtime and getting on TV and uh, building kind of a name for themselves instead of putting out real information. um, I think that became quite the tension point in that room.
0: Is that why you phased out or began to phase out the daily press briefings?
2: You know, that was a decision that the president made and decided that it was not the best platform for getting information to the American people. One of the things that a lot of people don't know about the White House press secretary is that the briefing is only a small, small part of the interaction that we have with the press. Almost every reporter in the country had my cell phone and email and access to my office. Uh, My morning would start extremely early with reporters calling with news uh, oftentimes by 5 a.m. well and late into the evening um, to 11 and midnight, most nights, checking stories, looking for information. And so there was a lot of different types of communication that the president felt were more productive uh, because the briefing room had become such a circus and such a fight for airtime instead of a fight for information. He also was not a big fan of the way that uh, his team was treated in that room and didn't feel like the level of respect that should exist did and made the decision to take a step back.
0: So Mike Neuer has a question. And Mike, I have the same question too. Uh, How did you handle the president's tweeting? Did you try to get him to think before every tweet? And Sarah, I would add, did you wake up some mornings and just go like this and go, oh my god, why did he say that? This is not the message for the day.
2: Uh, There were certainly mornings where of those 5 a.m. phone calls, the message was one thing, and by 7 a.m. it was something totally different uh, because of the president's tweets. But going back to my earlier point um, and a reminder, no one had elected me to anything, so it wasn't my message to set for the day, it was the president's. He was the one that 63 million Americans came out and voted for because they wanted him to be the one to make decisions. They wanted him to push his agenda and his vision for the country. And my job was to communicate that. Um, while some people don't like the president's tweeting, they may not like his style, um, I do think it is refreshing for a lot of people. and for one of the reasons that Donald Trump won in 2016 is because he does constantly tell people what he's thinking. He's very different than any politician that anyone has seen before. People wanted a change agent. They wanted a disruptor to come in and do things differently. And nobody can deny that Donald Trump has definitely shaken up Washington and turned the status quo on its head and done things differently. And I think that was what people wanted in 2016. I think it's also one of the reasons he's been able to get so much done in these four short years.
0: Let's talk a little bit more about a a filter that perhaps as a press secretary, you might have wished he'd have about talking with Bob Woodward. And it struck me as we were hearing all this uh, this last week and a little bit today, uh, Bob Woodward's first book on the Trump presidency was written while you were press secretary. Is that right?
2: Yes, correct.
0: Were you in touch with Bob Woodward? Did you encourage the president to do that? And more succinctly, given how President Trump was portrayed in fear, why in the heck would he do it again?
2: Uh, Well, for for fear, um, one, I was not in touch with Bob Woodward. He didn't reach out to me uh, for that book, either for an interview with me or the president. Um, But the president didn't actually talk to Bob Woodward for that book. And I think that's the reason we saw a total about face uh, for his latest book. I think the president felt if he had an ability to inject his voice into the story, he could change the narrative. Unfortunately, I think Bob Woodward sort of has a formula. Most presidents before Donald Trump have tried to change that narrative, tried to get a positive book out of Bob Woodward, and it usually doesn't happen. I don't think many of his predecessors have been very happy with um, the books that Woodward has written about them either, George W. Bush included. But I think that was the goal. The president wanted to shift that narrative. I think he felt if he put his own voice into the story, it would make it different. Uh, Unfortunately, I don't think it did.
0: How much damage do you think it's gonna do?
2: I I really don't, I don't think it's gonna change uh, the perception of who most people and what they go into the poll voting for. Right now, I think the two big areas that the president has going for him headed into November, one is the economy. Um, That is going to be front and center on most Americans' minds when they go and cast their ballot. Donald Trump has proven he can build a strong economy, and he is going to campaign, I think, aggressively that he can rebuild and do it again. The other area that I think Donald Trump will focus his message and as a a winning message for him is that on law and order. Um, we have seen chaos unleashed in American cities from coast to coast. Most people want to know that they can walk out of their door and be safe. What we saw take place just this past weekend where two uh police officers were ambushed and shot at point blank is just and, pur- and in your
0: book, you talk about the racial divide and how you know it concerns you so much. What do you think? President Trump needs to do to try to heal the country, especially if he is elected to a second term?
2: I think he needs to talk about the agenda that he um, has implemented in his first four years. He has a very good substantive record that shows his ability to do things that empower and lift up all Americans. Uh, The lowest unemployment for African Americans, Hispanic Americans, and Asian Americans pre-COVID. He's also fought for and secured and made permanent HBCU funding. He's put in place Opportunity Zones, which Uh, put an influx of resources into places that need it most, primarily minority communities, Uh, criminal justice reform, which disproportionately affects the minority community. That, compared to Joe Biden's 1994 crime bill, I think is a very good contrast for Donald Trump and another way that he can talk about how he has substantively helped people from all demographics and really helped empower Americans at every level. What about the
0: virus? I mean, we've, by the end of this week, if not early next week, 200,000 Americans will have died.
2: Well, I think he should talk about what he did early on. Um, He made clear and decisive action very quickly. Um, Let's not forget Donald Trump was talking about the coronavirus in January of this year in his State of the Union address. He found it important enough to include in that. He also quickly followed up with travel restrictions on China which likely saved thousands if not millions of American lives um, and further put in place additional travel restrictions. There certainly have been
0: some mistakes that have been made that probably in hindsight don't you think?
2: Uh, I think we're living in an unprecedented time with an unprecedented challenge in front of us. Uh, There were multiple Democrat governors who praised the president's response, particularly early on. Governor Cuomo, Governor Newsom, who he was with today in California, who also uh, made clear that anything they asked the federal government for, they provided. He mobilized U.S. companies and got the government out of the way so that they could-
0: Let me interject because I want to be sure I get to questions and I have some. And somebody just wrote me and said, is this a political rally? or Are we going to talk about your book? So we're going to talk about your book here. I just found the story about John Bolton hilarious. <laughs> um, and you're, you, I think you know which one I'm talking about, and that is how the motorcade. Uh, go ahead, and, and for anybody who are great fans of John Bolton, I'm sorry, but Sarah, take it away on this. It's a great story. <laughs>
2: Uh, well, I have to I have to go back to pre-motorcade when we were in the pre-trip briefing where his staff was informed that he would be the only individual um, outside of the president who would be assigned a motorcade that was done by UK protocol, not the US. And um, they asked him to partner with the staff motorcade so that they would be able to move throughout the city more easily and that request was made very early on before we ever arrived in the UK. Uh, Fast forward to the state visit and we are um, headed to a meeting. Secretary of Treasury Stephen Mnuchin, Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney and several other senior aides are traveling on a bus. We wait for Bolton. We wait for his motorcade. He doesn't show. We head to the event. We get pulled to the side of the road um, so that a, A police escorted motorcade can come through and leaves us stranded on the side. And we look over and there is John Bolton leaving the staff in the dust. It was less about us waiting and more about just a further indication of how um, he kind of acted. And uh, the chief of staff
0: had some harsh words for him, didn't
2: he? He did. Uh, Mick Mulvaney, who's a pretty laid back guy and usually didn't get too upset, um, unleashed the explosion of anger on him and had some choice words that I won't repeat here. You can read them in a uh, PG version in my book, but Mick was not very happy and made sure that John Bolton knew that the disrespect of the team would not be tolerated and he wasn't going to allow it to continue.
0: So, you know, everybody knows about Doris, uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin book, Team of Rivals. And President Trump really has not had much luck in some of the most senior positions, there has been a great deal of turnover. John Bolton, our Dallas resident, Rex Tillerson, John Kelly, just to name a few. Where, how do you think that the president misjudges? Why does the president misjudge people? Is there, what, what's, what's the flaw in either their character or in the president's judgment that he makes so many bad hiring decisions?
2: Well, I, I think. Other have, than you, of course. <laughs> I think you have to look at some of the really good ones that he's made, too. I yeah, think, but let's talk
0: about the, these, though.
2: Yeah, I, I, but I think I, I want to say this because I think so often we focus on the negative. And this was something I dealt with as press secretary. Everybody's so quick to talk about the, the outliers of the people that he doesn't get along with, but nobody ever wants to hear the story about the people he does. He has a number of aides that have been there for a long time. He, part of his- I, I,
0: I hear you, Sarah, but these are national security positions. These are the key positions in an administration. CIA, chief of staff, uh, secretary of defense, secretary of state,
2: Well, CIA, he's only had two. And the only reason that the original one isn't still there is because he got promoted to a a higher position. And I I think he has played a critical role for the president and one of his top aides. And he's been there since day one. Um, Also another key position, secretary of treasury. So I do think that he has had A lot of continuity in some of those key positions as well. Look, the president had never been in office before. I don't think that most of the people who have come into office, they've had kind of a built-in political system and a political team. Donald Trump didn't start with that. He wasn't a senator. He wasn't a governor. He didn't have a group of already seasoned political veterans and operatives. He started all new. I think that's one of the things people wanted to see from this president, and they got that. That doesn't mean you're not gonna have a few bumps along the way, but I think he has figured out the type of team and the type of individuals he needs in those roles as he has uh, governed. And I think he's got a good team around him now.
0: Uh, I just saw this question from Ray Termini, and he says, the turnover rate in the Trump administration has been noted by various publications. So we're touching on this now, but is it, is there, is President Trump difficult to please? Is he quick to react to make a judgment on people? Or is it something else?
2: Well, I think think in any White House, obviously, there's a tremendous toll that it takes on the person. But having been there and experienced it personally, I can tell you the intensity and the level of attacks and criticism are much more intense in this White House than any other. Uh, Frankly, some people just get tired. Some people can't handle it. I'm impressed by the president's ability to remain as uh, active and as engaged He is twice my age and has twice my energy. I don't know how he does it or where it comes from and how he continues to show up every day with that same fighting spirit. I think some people just can't take it. I think it really puts a toll on people um, after a while and you see people leave for a variety of reasons. But again, I think he's got a good team around him and I think he's been able to accomplish a lot uh, in just a short amount of time.
0: And let me encourage people to continue to send questions because we're about halfway through and um, I see a few questions I want to be sure we get to. Uh, This is from, uh, and if I mispronounce your name, uh, I apologize, O.F. Kelly. How did you deal with the direct and aggressive confrontation from reporters and the hate you received personally? And he mentions the red hen controversy, uh, which was that I think as someone who went to school in Lexington, Virginia, where you were trying to have a long weekend with your family was, was horrendous. Um, you went into the restaurant and they asked you to asked you to leave. Um, I would like to show the video, Sarah, of how you um, just described that to the press corps a few days later, if we can.
2: Sure would act publicly encourage people to kidnap my children. And this weekend, a member of Congress called for people to push back and make clear to those serving their country in this administration that they are not welcome anywhere, anytime, for anything. Healthy debate on ideas and political philosophy is important, but the calls for harassment and push for any Trump supporter to avoid the public is unacceptable. America is a great country, and our ability to find solutions despite those disagreements is what makes us unique.
0: So another question we have is, how did you describe your job to your children? Because this must have been an incredibly tense, difficult time for for you as well as your family.
2: You know, my kids are young, and so um, they didn't understand a lot of the process. Uh, they are currently eight, six, and five. When I went into the White House, my youngest was one and a half, and so they didn't understand fully what my job was, only that it was very demanding, um, and. As much as I could, though, I wanted them to understand why our family was making the sacrifice to serve, why we felt it was important to be part of the administration. And so I tried to include them in things that I did at the White House so that they could see it, so that they could be part of it. And hopefully one day they can appreciate um, what our family did, what we went through, and understand why we did it.
0: Um, so... It must, that what happened at Red Hen really changed the way you had to sort of conduct yourself, didn't it? You were the first press secretary to have Secret Service protection.
2: Yeah, it certainly uh, changed the dynamic at our house quite a bit um, to go from having quite a bit of independence to having Secret Service there 24 hours a day, every day of the week. And, um, you know, that was when the reality of the attacks and the intensity really set in is when you have a credible threat made against you. And that was one of the more difficult moments, certainly as a parent, is knowing that my job uh, was making it harder for me to keep my kids safe. And I don't think we ever wanna become the type of country that has Democrat restaurants or Republican restaurants or conservative restaurants or liberal restaurants. I think we wanna be able to disagree, but do so in a way um, that we can still find some common ground and still have respect for one another. And um, I I think the, the big part of that story that a lot of people don't know at the Red Hen is after the restaurant owner kicked my family out, my husband and I went home and the rest of our family, my in-laws and extended family went to another restaurant across the street where the restaurant owner from the Red Hen proceeded to follow them to that restaurant gather a group of her friends and protest them outside of a second restaurant that i wasn't even in Um, several of my extended family members are not trump supporters and had voted for hillary clinton and here they were being protested because they were related to me um, or dining with me and um, you know I I just don't see that there's a value in that type of harassment Um, and certainly I don't think that that helps their cause in any way. But at the end of the day, it made us stronger and it made us more resilient in what we were doing and more convicted to continue doing it and standing up for what we believe in and not allowing the liberal mob to bully us and tell us that we uh, you know, needed to be different than many. So be we have a,
0: a comment and Manasseh sent this in um, uh, yesterday. Uh, he's a student at University of Texas Uh, He stays up late because he watched uh, Saturday Night Live, um, and he says, uh, how did you deal with, is it A.D. or I.D. Bryant's SNL portrayal of you, for example? Did it upset you, or were you like George W. Bush and sort of laughed it off? (laughs)
2: I, you know, I, I think there's the the old phrase um, that imitation is the greatest form of flattery. So I guess there's part of you that should be flattered. But um, I thought that there was plenty of material for them to be funny. But instead of being funny, they were just mean. I remember when Saturday Night Live used to actually be a comedy show. And I think they should go back to that and, and focus less on just being mean and angry and get back to some humor, because I think everybody in the country could use a little bit more of that.
0: Absolutely. In the book, you talk about the challenges you had balancing um, being a mother uh, with with such a stressful job. And I wonder if you might tell our viewers uh, about that.
2: Yeah, I think so often um, women in particular put so much pressure on one another to be perfect. Uh, I think social media, while it can be a great tool, is also can be very detrimental because everybody's watching the highlight reel of other people's lives whether it's the perfect family photo the perfect vacation the perfect birthday parties and we put that pressure on ourselves moms in particular to live up to the expectation of being perfect which is obviously not realistic especially when you're dealing with kids there are so many challenges that come with that, that I I think we can do a better job of supporting one another, encouraging one another, and empowering other women and other moms uh, to be able to take on big roles and manage both. If I hadn't had a great support system, people who believed in me, um, and a husband that partnered with me in this journey, I wouldn't have been able to do it, but I'm glad that I was. I have a daughter that I want to know that she can grow up and do anything that she wants and that she's capable of doing anything that any boy is, um, whether that's having a family and taking on a big job, having a family and being a stay at home mom, or not having a family and just devoting herself to her career. I want her to know that she can do anything she wants in America because we still live in the greatest country on the planet. And I want her to feel empowered by that.
0: Absolutely. I want my grandchildren to feel that way too. Um, in In the title of your book, and the subtitle, it says "Faith, Freedom, and the Fight uh, of Our Lives." Talk about faith.
2: Um, for me, it Over- was in your life uh, with, without my faith I, I'm not sure I would have lasted as long as I did in the White House when you have the level of critics where nothing is off limits, whether it was my makeup or my clothes or my fitness to be a parent, everything was challenged, everything was questioned if I didn't have that base in my faith, I didn't have that foundation, that gave me the confidence to step on that stage and stand behind that podium every day. And I didn't need the New York Times or the Washington Post or anybody else to define me. I had a creator who had already done that. And I knew that he had created me for a specific plan and purpose. I tried to stay focused on that and be faithful in what I felt he had called me to do. And again, I'm thankful that I had it because if I didn't have faith, I'm not sure I would have had the strength and the confidence to go through some of those most difficult and challenging days.
0: You know, just just came to mind when we were talking about Lexington and the Red Hen. Um, Washington and Lee, where your uh, father-in-law went to school, uh, they're having a difficult decision right now about whether or not they should change the university's name. And also we've seen just in our own city here, a statue of Robert E. Lee was taken down. What are your thoughts about, about say, Washington Lee or some, how some of these other statue situations have been handled?
2: You know, I, I think certainly it's a discussion to have. Um, I think that it needs to be on that local matter. Washington and Lee needs to be part of the university decision. It doesn't need to be mandated uh, by people like me who have nothing to do with the university and nothing to do with the school. But I do think that we can take a look at uh, things that are uh, difficult for other people, things that create a difficult environment for other people, and if it makes it where it's impossible for them to to move forward because of that, I think it's certainly a conversation to have.
0: Let's talk a bit about the situation with um, uh, Jim Comey, because certainly that was very unpleasant for you. And you talk in the book about how you were uh, told that you were going to be deposed, if that's the right language at that point. Um, When did you learn that Director Comey was going to be terminated?
2: Uh, I learned pretty much after it happened. So it happened and I found out and uh, then the the news started uh, coming in. And shortly after, um, we divided up the news outlets for the evening. Uh, Myself, Sean Spicer and Kellyanne Conway, I was the deputy press secretary at the time working under Sean Spicer. And so we divided up the news outlets that evening and went out to respond on behalf of the president.
0: And, of course, you got lots of criticism about how you said that there were, I think you used the word, countless people who um, were glad that Director Comey was, he was not popular, countless former and current FBI officials, agents said they were um, not confident in his leadership. And you had the chance to explain that. Would you do that now for our viewers as well? You talk about it in the book.
2: Absolutely, and I would encourage people to read the, the full account. Uh, I dedicated an entire chapter to what I call the Russia witch hunt. Um, For two years, the media and their Democrat allies perpetuated a fake story that the president was a traitor to his own country. Uh, The malicious attacks and lies against not just the president, but everybody around him uh, was just, I think, despicable and should never happen to another American president ever in our history. And we're seeing some of that investigation continue to show just how corrupt and how wide-ranging the corruption was both at the FBI uh, and the Department of Justice in their role in going after the president. And I think, you know, I'm very hopeful that we'll see John Durham's investigation come to a close soon and get some clarity on just how many people were involved in the corruption in that process.
0: How do you judge Robert Mueller?
2: Uh, Look, I think he was a a Republican figurehead. I think he had a group of people who had one mission and one mission only that worked under him and that was to destroy the president and take down a duly elected president. Uh, They made very clear from the moment that I voluntarily came to interview with them, I was not a target, I was not a subject, yet they made me feel like a common criminal from the time I stepped in and I can tell by the report in the way that they phrased my words, Uh, and tried to make it as if something totally different took place. Um, I think it tells me everything I need to know about the sham investigation. How many
0: hours did you have to meet with him?
2: I think it was uh, about six, a little over six hours.
0: And did you have to pay your own legal fees?
2: Um, I'm not going to get into too many details, but we're still kind of working on through in some of that process.
0: So we have a question from Carl Pankratz. He says, after working intimately with media organizations, do you feel the majority of their interests were largely motivated by fact gathering or political advocacy?
2: Uh, I definitely wouldn't say it's fact gathering. I think at the end of the day, most media organizations are looking for one thing. That's profit. Don't forget they're all still a business. They are trying to generate either viewers or clicks or subscription uh, to their news outlet. They are a business and they are trying to make money. And I think most news organizations have found that it is uh, much more advantageous to make money, in some cases to go after the president, in other cases, probably to be more favorable. But I think if anybody forgets that um, they've missed a lot of what drives the news industry, and um, I, I definitely wouldn't say that they're number one priority is fact-gathering.
0: So one of our uh, viewers asked, what are your career plans? So before you answer, let me read this out of the book. There are two types of people who run for a political office. People uh, that, this, excuse me, that's not out of your book. It's an interview you just gave with the New York Times uh, early in, in September. There are two types of people who run for political office, people that are called and people that just want to be senator or governor. I feel like I've been called. When are you going to announce that you're running for governor? Well, news uh, for the World Affairs Council.
2: Well, I know the point I was trying to make is that um, if I made a decision to run, it would be because I was called. Right now, my focus is on 2020. I want to help Donald Trump get reelected. I'd like to see Republicans hold on to the Senate, and I'd love to see Republicans take back the House and never have to utter the word Speaker Pelosi again. So my focus is on 2020. After we get through that, I'll make a decision about whether or not I'll run. In
0: Arkansas, is the governor term limited or how does that work?
2: The governor will be term term limited. It will be an open seat in 2022.
0: So when would you, in when when would a prospective candidate need to announce?
2: I think it depends on the environment. For me, it'll be sometime after 2020 when I make a decision on what we're gonna do as a family.
0: What do you think is the future of the Republican party? It's changed so much.
2: Well, I I think that, um, you know, the big bulk of the Republican Party uh, is going to be having to fight back against the radical left. I hope that the Republican Party will remain true to its principles of smaller government, a party that always protects life and does everything we can to protect life from uh, from conception to its natural conclusion. I would like to see us continue to focus on building an economy through lowering taxes and empowering workers. Um, I think that the principles that the party has now, I hope that will remain true and strong to the Second Amendment, religious freedom. These are things that are very important and I think will become even more important as the Democrat Party moves further to the left.
0: So we always have questions from our viewers because a lot of them are aspiring authors. How did you decide to write the book and what was your favorite part about writing it?
2: Uh, You know, for me, writing the book was in large part, I wanted people to see the other side of the White House. There have been so many negative books written about the White House and the president himself, that I wanted somebody who had spent two and a half years working next to the president and had a great experience to see that side, to see the Donald Trump that I got to see every day, the one who loves this country and is fighting to make it better. Um, So that was a big part of the catalyst for me writing the book. Um, In terms of what I liked best, um, it was very therapeutic and kind of enjoyable to get to go back and live through. Um, I, I definitely liked writing about the best, the good parts a little more than the than the bad parts, uh, but all of it was a, kind of a, a nice process to go back through and really relive in a slower way, the two and a half years in the White House, but also, um, you know, the 35 years of my life before the White House.
0: Another question from uh, Mr. Termini, were you aware of leaks within the White House? I suspect you were. <laughs> How do leaks affect the ability of the president and others within the White House to do their jobs?
2: Um, I have said this before, and I'll continue to say it until the leaks stop. I think leaking is one of the most cowardly, disgusting acts um, that you can do in a White House because it takes away the president and the staff's ability to trust one another, to be able to speak candidly and openly. And if you can't have difficult and tough discussions, opposing views in a discussion, without fear of that landing on the front page of a newspaper, it makes people start to hold back. Maybe they're not as honest, maybe they don't really give their opinion or their full-throated endorsement or their full-throated pushback of a particular policy. And sometimes a lawmaker needs to have those opposing views as they're making a decision. And if they don't have people around them with a comfort level to do that, I don't think it's a good thing for the country. Uh, I made this clear on many occasions. It also made my job a lot harder as the press secretary, because I was usually the one dealing with the stories that were generated by anonymous sources, uh, something I find extremely frustrating, and uh, again, a a cowardly thing to do.
0: You think the New York Times should not have published the article anonymous, or the op-ed?
2: Um, And and I would hope that if it was um, a different administration, I would say the same thing because I just don't know what purpose that serves to me. If you feel that strongly um, and you have such uh, charged accusations to make, um, put your name on it. I, I do that every single day in the role that I played. Obviously, I know I chose that path. But I think if you are going to inject yourself into the news cycle in that way, and you're going to make an accusation or a charge at that level, you should have the courage to put your name on it.
0: Carolyn Stevens wants to know, as a communicator, who are your role models? And have there, uh, have there been women journalists you admire?
2: Um, For me, this is an easy one on the role model question. uh, My dad, I am very blessed to have uh, the ultimate communicator as a parent and somebody who has spent most of his life uh, talking to other people. He started his first job was when he was, uh, was 14 on radio and uh, I don't think he stopped talking since then and so I got to learn from somebody who I think is truly one of the best and one of the reasons that he's so good at it is because he really believes in the message and I think that's so important as a communicator you really have to believe in what you're selling whether you're a a communicator for a politician communicator for a product if you don't believe it yourself it's very hard to go out and sell it to somebody else so that that's always my advice for people who want to work in the field believe in what you're doing Um, I was lucky enough to have one of the best mentors you could in my dad
0: and while we're talking about advice for young people, Christian Henderson says, I loved watching your interactions with aggressive media and that you still remain classy and calm. As an international relations student, a young female hoping to serve in D.C. on national security issues and a conservative. What advice do you have for young conservatives to be successful? And what she says adds what I perceive will be a very hostile environment for years to come.
2: Uh, I think the most important thing you can do is to a couple of things, one, be yourself. Don't try to be anything other than who you are and who you were created to be. Uh, number two, I think if you are uh, gonna work in politics, know what you believe in. Know who you are and know what you believe and don't be afraid to talk about it, to be public about where you are. Find other people to be that agree with you to be part of your support system. Um, and I, I think people have to stand strong in their conviction. Uh, as much as I'd love for all those people to be on my side and support what I believe in, I think it's important to have the opposing view as well. Um, but do it respectfully. You can disagree with people without being disagreeable. And I think that if we can go back to respecting one another a little bit more, it would go a long way.
0: Um, again, there's been many questions, and there are about three of them. Uh, do, do you ever, did you ever feel compromised? in your role, uh, did President Trump in any way ever encourage you or expect you not to tell the truth?
2: No, and if he had, that would have been um, a deal breaker for me in terms of continuing in the role. Uh, In fact, quite the contrary. The president was one of the people that empowered me and gave me confidence and support to go out and carry his message to the world. When so many of uh, the liberal mob were attacking me, it was the president who stopped me and encouraged me. In fact, one of the more impactful moments for me in the administration was an exchange I had with the president. I write about it in the book. We were in Japan. We are getting ready to walk into a bilateral meeting with Prime Minister Abe, and the president has a lot of things that should be on his mind and were on his mind, Um, but he knew that I had had a really difficult week. I'd been just Relentlessly attacked. I'd had an LA Times reporter come at me pretty aggressively about my appearance um, and I, it just wasn't a great week for me. And just before we step into the room, the president stops me, looks me directly in the eye and he says, Sarah, you're smart. You're beautiful. And the reason they attack you is because you're good at your job. Don't let them get you down. Then he kind of slapped my shoulders and now let's get back to work. So he knew though, that I needed that boost. I needed that encouragement and he was the one to empower me. And, um, it was again, a very impactful time and moment for me in the administration.
0: Sherry wants to know Are you still in contact with President Trump? How often and are you involved in his re election campaign? And given some of the things that you've said tonight, I think you are.
2: I, I'm not, a, I don't have an official role at all. Um, my opinions and my support for the president are my own personal. I, I still maintain a good relationship with the president. I still talk to him and see him uh, as much as possible. I was in his office not too long ago where I had the opportunity, I guess, about 10 days ago to hand deliver a copy of my book to him, which I was proud to do and proud for him to get to be one of the very first people to have my book and read my story. And um, I, again, maintain a good relationship with the president, as well as members of his family.
0: I guess this shows why a press secretary has to be prepared on everything, because Peter Sheridan asked, how do you feel about the pardoning or possible pardoning of Edward Snowden? I would not have Um, thought to ask you that, but.
2: (laughs) Well, um, you know, we'll see. I I guess I'm not sure if news just happened on that. I've kind of been in a bubble for the last few hours. Um, If something has taken place, I may have missed that. But I think that's a decision for the president. He'll have to make the one that he thinks is the right one uh, for the country. If he thinks that's the right thing to do, I'll leave that to him.
0: And uh, Brendan McGuire. As the business model of news has shifted more heavily towards polarizing content, in your opinion, is there a business opportunity that could contrast with the current model that can actually make money and be successful?
2: Uh, I would love for somebody to figure that out, because I think it would be uh, spectacular if they did. One of the problems I have with journalism today And one of the things that I think is a real danger to the country is that news and opinion are so blended together. There used to be such a clear line of separation between the news division and the opinion section. And now it's very hard to tell the difference. A lot of people um, have a hard time reading a story and not knowing what side of the issue the reporter falls on. I think it's very dangerous. For reporters to start injecting their own personal bias into their reporting. If they do that, they should be on the opinion side at the opinion desk, not in the news division. I think we have to go back where we separate those two things and really let people make up their own mind based on the facts, not based on the opinions of the reporters. Where do you get your
0: news now, Sarah? Uh,
2: you know, I. I spend a little bit of time watching local news I think it is um, usually a a lot less you know tainted and closer to the source most of those anchors will see the people they're reporting on at schools and baseball practice and things like that and so I think that there's a sense of community in that that they you know try to really strive for so I I still like local news Um, not all local news but that's usually where I go to but um, also just try to get information that's less news and more just facts and make a decision based off of We have just
0: another minute or two, and I meant to ask you this before. Um, You have a copy of your book there, I suspect.
2: I do, right behind me on the shelf.
0: (laughs) Can you grab, is it difficult for you to grab it? Because I'd love for you to read um, the last page or so uh, on page 253 and and maybe start um, where it says, the 11-year-old girl didn't speak. And if you would read that paragraph, because I always like to, for our viewers, to get a sense of how someone writes.
2: Sure, um, just that just that one paragraph?
0: No, the whole, to the end of the book there. eleven-year-old. The oh, okay.
2: sure. Uh, the 11-year-old girl didn't speak as she walked through Yad Vashem. At one point, she reached up for her father's hand, gripping it tightly, but she didn't say a word. Her father, never leaving her side, watched his daughter and waited, hoping she understood why her parents wanted her to see this. The father worried they'd made a mistake, This that it was all just too much for her at a young age. They got to the end, and there was a guest book for visitors to sign. The girl reached up and took the pen out of her father's shirt pocket that she knew was always there. Looking over her shoulder, the father watched as his daughter inscribed her name and address in the book, and then paused at the section for comments. She still hadn't said a word since entering Yad Vashem, but in the book, the little girl carefully wrote, Why didn't somebody do something? Tears welled in the father's eyes. And in that moment, he knew that she got it. Why didn't somebody do something? The little girl understood. All it takes for evil to win is for good people to do nothing. The reason I know that story is I was that little girl. My prayer for America is that like the brave generations before us, we take a stand against evil. Now is our chance to choose the right side let's be the somebodies who do something.
0: Sarah, Huckabee Sanders, thanks so much for being our guest here at the World Affairs Council. Continued to success. And uh, as I said, if you, when you are elected governor, fix some of those trail uh, signs, especially in the Eagle Rock loop so I don't get lost next time. I okay. wanna encourage all of our viewers to always go to interabangbooks.com for your purchases. And you can just type in that code, DFWworld to get the 10% off. Enjoy the rest of your evening. Thanks for being with us. Good night.